every family has some structure, God-given structure. There's a mom and there's a dad. There's children. There are brothers and sisters. There's grandparents. There's nephews and nieces and aunts and uncles. And uh, what was interesting is I thought about our time yesterday, and I was just reflecting on it and thanking the Lord for it this morning. You know, we don't, uh, there's a structure in the family, meaning that we don't, you know, we don't treat everybody just the exact same way. What I mean is, like, I don't talk to my brother the same way I talk to my grandmother. <laughs> that makes sense? Maybe you do talk to your grandma the same way you talk to your brother. I don't know. I was just kind of laughing and joking and jacking around with my brother a lot. And we do that a lot, and it's fun. But with my grandma, it's, it's like, no, I want to sit with grandma. I want to sit with her and just listen and really just have a more deferential honoring posture. I want to listen and glean as much from her as I can because I don't know how many more days she has. And it just dawned on me that every family, though very different, has structure, has a, a form, God-given. Okay, I'm not here to preach about the family, but there's a God-given form to the family. And if that's true, and if the church of Jesus Christ is also a family, then it follows and it makes sense that we would find a God-given structure in the family of faith, right? That we would look in the Bible and we would see that God says several things about how we should structure our families, our faith families, our local churches. I've said many times throughout this series on the church that church is not an event. It's a family. Um, Now to qualify that that slightly, you know, we might say that uh, it is an event in that we do gather together at a particular place in a particular time, we do gather as a family, but the essence of who we are is familial, not something we kind of pop into and then pop out. We are a family who gathers. And if that's true, then again, it makes sense that we would find in the Bible various things about how we should structure our family life together. Theologians and Pastors often call this structure, this whole conversation about structure, church polity. Not politics, but polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. Or church government. How should the church govern itself? How does the church structure itself? How are decisions made? Who does what? Who's responsible for what? Now, we, as good American individualist, uh, individualist, we would prefer to do things our own. Amen? We often say working with others is kind of a drag. College students, you feel me on that? Like, don't you love group projects? No, nobody likes group projects. But if you're that guy, girl who likes them, more power to you. But usually we don't like group projects because there's going to be like one person who ends up doing everything. Okay? Now, interestingly... Um, Jesus put us into communities, families, groups for our growth. Many of us don't like group projects because they're, they're not very efficient, but apparently Jesus didn't want to grow and mature us through efficiency, but rather through community, through churches, what we call local churches, local gatherings of brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Again, how should these gatherings, how should these communities, how should these groups, how should these families organize themselves? Should we just all kind of show up? And I think there are some denominations who kind of show up and there's no structure, there's no form, there's no authority structure. You know, everyone just kind of shows up and however the Spirit leads, the Spirit leads and it, it can be chaotic. So how should we organize ourselves? Well, thankfully, we're not the first Christians to ask this question or consider this. Uh, I know all of you woke up on Mother's Day, by the way, hoping to study church government. So um, happy Mother's Day. And in light of your hopes and desires, I want to give you three, quickly, three forms of church government uh, that have been just in the church for 2,000 years. So here are three ways, three main ways churches have organized themselves through the centuries. Episcopalianism, Presbyterianism, and Congregationalism. I'm going to go through these quickly as I can. Episcopalianism, Presbyterianism, and Congregationalism. First, Episcopalianism places the church's ultimate authority under Christ in a bishop, Greek word being episkopos. Bishops appoint and ordain the other bishops and presbyters, priests, and deacons who serve underneath their authority. The bishops rule all the churches of a specific region. The presbyters and priests serve specific churches in that region. The deacons serve the bishops and the presbyters in those specific churches. Examples of Episcopal uh, Episcopal churches are, of course, the Episcopal Church, also the Anglican Church, Methodist Church, and the Roman Catholic Church with some difference. So there's Episcopalianism. But then also Christians have organized themselves uh, under what's called Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism places the church's ultimate authority under Christ in the elders, Greek word, there is presbyteroi, hence the word Presbyterianism. Presbyterians make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, though they all collectively govern the church. They also form presbyteries, these groups of uh, groups made up of all the teaching elders of a region and one ruling elder from all the churches in a given a given area. And the presbytery has authority over the churches of that region. And then those presbyteries then form synods, and then the synod forms a general assembly at the national level. Um, This is a very brief overview, but um, uh, by the way, if if we weren't congregationalists, spoiler alert, then I would argue Presbyterianism would be the next best option. Uh, But Presbyterian churches are obviously Presbyterian. Also, Christian Reformed churches are Presbyterian and some other denominations as well. So we have Episcopalianism, Presbyterianism, and then finally Congregationalism. Congregationalism, what is that? Well, it places the church's ultimate authority under Christ in the members of the local congregation. Each church is autonomous, meaning that it governs itself. There's no person or structure or hierarchy presiding over individual local churches. Now, there are two kinds of congregational churches. There are usually elder-ruled congregational churches and elder-led congregational churches. Elder-ruled congregationists say the final authority belongs to the elders of an independent church. Elder-led congregationalists say the final authority belongs to the gathered congregation as led by the elders. Examples of congregationalism are Baptist churches, Bible churches, and free churches. Most non-denominational churches are congregationalist, usually elder-ruled, 
sometimes elder-led. Now, the form of church government as I'm argue, that I'm going to be arguing for today and explaining today is um, elder-led congregationalism. This may not be the way that you would describe your church to your friends. You know, if someone says, hey, tell me about your church, you're probably not going to say, you know, we're elder-led congregationalists. You're not going to do that. But here, and maybe you should at some point, but here's the thing. Elder-led congregationalism, as we're going to see, is Jesus' discipleship program. It's His means towards the end of our growth in Christ. That we're led by elders and yet responsible to do the work of the ministry in our local churches. So, elder-led congregationalism really captures two very basic and very biblical ideas. The two ideas can be summarized like this. Church members have a job, and elders train them for their job. That's where we're going today. Church members have a job, and the elders train them for their job. To say it another way, church membership is a job, and the elders do the job training. Now, all of what I I'm going to say here today is built on a premise, a theological truth that we have to nail down before we go any further. It has to do with the promises of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, God said that He would make a new covenant with His people, and through this new covenant, He'd forgive their sins, give them a new heart, enable them to obey His commands. He'd write His law on their hearts, give His people His spirit, and His law on their hearts. These promises, here's the key point for us, these promises are for every single member of the New Covenant family, New Covenant people. Part of the New Covenant promises are directly pertinent to our discussion of elder-led congregationalism and that the Lord said that every member of the New Covenant, you're like, John, I don't know what you mean by New Covenant. Well, just think, if you're a Christian, you're a member of the New Covenant, okay? Got it? You're a Christian, you're part of this group I'm talking about. Every member of the new covenant, God said, would have equal and direct access to him and to the knowledge of him. Here's how the Lord said it through Jeremiah the prophet. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So who's going to know the Lord? Every member of this new covenant community, not some special class of priests or pastors. Every new covenant member will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Now, if that's true, and if the Holy Spirit lives in every member of the new covenant, then it follows that every member of the new covenant has, right now, Christian, you have a basic understanding of the gospel. You're like, John, I really struggle to share my faith. I, I always just you know, stumble all over the place. I hate it when you ask me to share the gospel in 60 seconds or less in our member interviews. I didn't go to seminary. That's fine. But if you're a believer, if you're in the new covenant people of God, you know the gospel. Why? Because it's the thing that saved you. Amen? So you know something of its essence. And you have the Holy Spirit inside of you as a member of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is that you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to read lots of books to know God. 
Everyone who's in Christ has a new heart with the law of God written on it and has the Holy Spirit in them. Therefore, here's the point, every member of the new covenant is both able and responsible to carry out their responsibilities in the new covenant. Every member is both able and responsible to carry out their job as church members. This is the foundation of congregationalism. We believe that God has enabled and required us as all of His blood-bought, spirit-filled people to do the work of ministry. Now, let's break this down. I said that elder-led congregationalism is two ideas. Church members have a job. Elders train them for their job. Number one, church members have a job. Church membership is a job. What is it? What is a church member's job? Well, it's extremely simple to say and important. Here it is. Church members affirm true doctrine and true believers. Church members affirm true doctrine and true believers. Let me add one more caveat here before we dive into the the weeds of Congregationalism. Most Baptist churches who are congregationalists, really what they mean and how they function is like a democracy. Like we just vote on everything. <laughs> but that's not congregationalism at its core. More on what we vote on later. Congregationalism at its core is that all of the members of the church are responsible to affirm true doctrine and affirm true believers. That's the core. Not voting on what color we want the carpet to be. The core of congregationalism is your responsibility and ability to affirm true doctrine and affirm true believers. Jonathan Lehman in his little book, Understanding the Congregation's Authority, says says it this way. It's really catchy. I hope it's memorable. He says, church members are responsible for the what and the who of the gospel. The what of the gospel and the who of the gospel. Let's start with how we as church members guard the what of the gospel or our responsibility to affirm true doctrine. Because all believers have the Holy Spirit, all believers are responsible and able to separate the true gospel from a false gospel. Every Christian is able and responsible to affirm true doctrine. This is all over the New Testament. In his first letter, the Apostle John tells his readers to not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John assumes that these believers can know which spirits are from God because every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John, writing to believers, tells them to do this testing work. Another example is Second Peter 3, where the apostle Peter tells his readers to, quote, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter says, you believers, take care that you're not carried away with false teaching. Then in Galatians 1, you might turn to Galatians 1. This is usually the most clear passage on our responsibility as church members to guard the Guard the gospel, guard sound doctrine. Galatians 1, Paul tells the churches of Galatia to get rid of anybody who's preaching a false gospel. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul writes, I'm astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching a, to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says to the church, who's he writing to? Verse 2, all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Paul says to the churches of Galatia to get rid of anyone who's preaching a gospel that's contrary to the true gospel. He says that the church, not the leaders of the church, but rather the church should have nothing to do with anyone, even himself or an angel, if they come preaching a gospel that is contrary to the one that was preached to them. Why is this important? His assumption is that the authority of the church outranks the authority of even the apostles or the angels if they show up preaching a distorted gospel. He says, you people, y'all make sure that if that happens, they're out of there. Not the elders, not the presbytery, not the pope. You, churches, get rid of people who preach false gospels. So the upshot of these texts from John and Peter and Paul is that the apostles put the authority to guard the gospel in the hands of the churches. Not in the bishops or the presbyteries, college of cardinals or the pope. The members of a local church, because they, you, have the Holy Spirit, are able to discern truth from error and therefore responsible to promote truth and get rid of error. Error. These letters I read to you were all written to ordinary Christians. They weren't written to trained theologians or pastors or people with seminary degrees. The point, again, is that every follower of Jesus, Jesus is able to distinguish between the true gospel and the false gospel, between good teaching and bad. Theological training is great. I gave way too much of my life to it, probably. But the only thing churches need to guard the gospel is the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. The way this works out in our churches, in elder-led congregational churches, is that the church has the authority to choose and remove its teachers. The members of a church have the ability and responsibility to select teachers who know and love the gospel, who teach it faithfully, and who live lives that accord to it. This is why church, in what is it, three weeks, four weeks, you're going to vote whether Jared Pulse should be an elder or a teacher in our church. Why? Because it's your responsibility to affirm gospel teachers, to choose them. It's also your responsibility to remove them if they start distorting the gospel. This means, church, that if I or any of your elders ever begin to distort the gospel, you should fire me. I'm serious. The gospel's too precious, it's too powerful, it's too good, it's too sweet to let some man distort it 
and wreak havoc in the Lord's church. A church and its elders may not agree on every particular point of doctrine, but if the elders start promoting a false gospel, the congregation functions like an emergency break and keeps the whole church from driving over the cliff into heresy. It could be said in our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, that 30, 40 years ago, if local churches had taken their responsibility to do this seriously, we wouldn't have had professors in our seminaries denying the bodily resurrection, denying inerrancy, denying a real literal hell, denying the basic truths of evangelical Christianity. If local churches had taken their responsibility seriously, those guys wouldn't be teaching in seminaries and leading thousands of pastors and churches astray. Church, you're responsible for the integrity of the gospel. Yes, of course your elders are too. More on that in a minute. But you're responsible to ensure that the integrity of the gospel is upheld and maintained in this local congregation. Another way this works itself out in a local church is that you, church, are responsible for the church's doctrinal statement. If the church's doctrinal statement promotes a false gospel, then the church should work to correct that. Just the other day, I was reading a church's doctrinal statement. You know, pastors, we do that for fun. Like, you know, just read random doctrinal statements. And I came across, frankly, a heresy. Um, This church said, uh, might get the language wrong, but that uh, God exists in three manifestations. That the Trinity uh, manifests, God manifests Himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But that's actually heresy. God is Father. Son and Holy Spirit. He doesn't become one and then become the other and then become the other. He doesn't manifest as one thing and then manifest as the other thing. And No, 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 no. <laughs> That's, that was denied in the Council of Nicaea. God is three and one at the same time. And so this church's doctrinal statement is actually very wrong. And I'm going to have a conversation with the pastor, by the way, about it and hope it goes well. But churches should know enough about the gospel, enough about sound auction to not let that happen the church as a whole the point is the church not just the elders not the presbytery the church is responsible to guard the gospel so church members affirm true doctrine the second part of your job description is that church members affirm true believers church members affirm true believers the what and then the who of the gospel Again, because all believers have the Spirit, all believers are able and responsible to discern not only true gospel from false gospel, but also a true knowledge of God from a false knowledge of God. In other words, all believers are able and responsible to assess each other's professions of faith. Practically, this means that church members have the authority to receive and dismiss members of the church. Matthew 16, if you want to find that, it's what Alberta just read for us. This is where this teaching is rooted, Matthew 16 and then 18 we'll look at in a minute. Jesus calls this authority the keys of the kingdom. Remember what Jesus had just done there in Matthew 16. He tells Peter, you know, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The powers of hell won't prevail against it. Then, though, this verse we often don't read 
verse 19 says, Jesus says that he'll give Peter and the disciples the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now back to verse 18, we need to spend a moment thinking about the rock. What is the rock that Jesus is referring to? Many Protestants argue that the rock is Peter's confession, namely just his words or the truth of what he said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But it begs the question, can a church be built merely on words? Can a church be built merely on words? Don't confessions come from people? Confessions come from people. So it seems that Jesus will build his church on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus isn't building his church only on people or only on words. He's building his church on people who confess or profess the right words, on people who confess him as Christ, the son of the living God, and who live their lives accordingly. This, let me just summarize it like this. This is where the saying, you know, uh, your walk needs to match your talk. You ever heard that? Your life has to match what you say. Words aren't enough. And life isn't enough. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on true confessors, people who say the right thing and are living accordingly. Jesus is building his church on such people. This helps us then know what Jesus means in verse 19 when he says, I will give you, Peter, the apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven then seem to refer to the authority Jesus gives to his people to evaluate a person's words and life in order to determine if they're a true gospel confessor or not. Jesus is giving Peter and the apostles the authority to do with others what he'd just done with them. Jesus says that Peter's answer came from the Father who is in heaven. Now he gives that authority to speak on behalf of heaven when he binds or looses on earth. This language of binding and loosing was used by rabbis when they were faced with a particular law and how it applied to a particular situation. They would have to decide whether the law bound a person in certain circumstances or not. Jesus is saying this thing, this idea of binding and loosing, this, this ability to hear gospel words and look at a, a life and discern if it's agreeable with those gospel words, this ability to bind that or loose that is now given to you, Peter and the apostles. But it doesn't say with Peter and the apostles. Go over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we find the same language again in verse 18. This is the passage of church discipline, which we studied several weeks ago. Verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then notice the language of verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
So Jesus gave Peter and the apostles this authority to bind and loose. Two chapters later, he gives the authority to bind and loose to the church, the ecclesia. He's putting the keys of the kingdom into the hands of the local church. The church, as the body of Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ, represents Christ on the earth, and it functions like Christ, just as Christ was before the disciples saying, who do you think I am? And he was determining whether they understood who he was or not. We do that on his behalf when we decipher who true gospel confessors are. Now, if you're listening closely, you might have this question. You might be thinking, well, John, are you saying that the church makes people Christians? No, I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm emphatically not saying that the church makes anybody right before God. That's Jesus' job alone. What I am saying is that a church, though we can't make a person a a citizen of heaven, we can affirm someone as a citizen of heaven. Whoever's holding the keys of the kingdom has heaven's authority not to make a Christian, but to declare who is a Christian. This means that becoming a member of a church is like visiting your nation's embassy if your passport expires when you're out of the country. The embassy can't make you a citizen, but they do have the authority to declare that you are a citizen. This is why, especially in this age, Joining a church, not going to a church, but joining a church is so important because it's God's way of identifying who His people are. It doesn't make you a citizen of heaven, but it does affirm you as such. So how does this apply to elder-led congregationalism? Well, as I said, This means that members of a local church who have the Spirit of Christ and the authority of Christ are responsible for protecting and preserving the gospel of Christ by affirming and disaffirming. I think that's a word. Is that a word? Disaffirming? I don't know. Affirming and disaffirming gospel citizens. So we affirm the gospel and we affirm gospel citizens. It's the congregation that's supposed to act to make clear who represents Jesus to the world, not just the elders. This is why you may have missed it in last week's member meeting, but Nick read a line that was so important and crucial to our member meeting and how we do church. He says, he said, these individuals come to the church upon the recommendation of the elders. And then he read you know, Tessa's story, Bernice's story, and Gary's story. And then you guys voted on their membership. Why? All we can do is recommend You have to receive, church, you're responsible to receive members into the church and to remove members if necessary. It's not the elder's job. This is a key difference, perhaps one of the key differences between elder-led congregationalism and elder-ruled congregationalism. One, the church is responsible for the membership of the church, and in the other, the elders are responsible for the members of the church. Of the church, but I think Matthew 16 and 18, as I've tried to quickly show, argue for elder led congregationalism, not elder ruled. One other quick example from the Bible that we won't get to and read, but 1 Corinthians 5, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church in Corinth to remove a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. He does not say, Hey, elders, remove this man. He says, Hey, church, remove this man. 
Church, act. Church, remove. Church, you're responsible to address this immorality. Stop sweeping it under the carpet. Remove this guy. Because he's living contrary to the gospel. His his life is not matching his words. So, when the pastors or elders say to the church, hey, it's our job to receive members. It's our job to discipline. We weaken Christians and promote complacency. This is why, again, we spend time in our member meetings, seeing members in and out, because it's not just the elders who are supposed to do this job. It's not that Nick and I just want you to know who's joining the church. We want you to exercise the authority that Jesus gave you in receiving members and removing them. Otherwise, we've effectively fired you from the job Jesus gave you in Matthew 16 and 18. Congregationalism means that the members of the church own the ministry of the church. Now, to do your job as members well, you need to know the gospel and you need to know one another. This is why I said this is Jesus' discipleship program. This is more than just a meeting once a quarter. We should be growing in our understanding of the gospel, first of all, by reading the Bible, talking about it with other believers, reading good Christian books. We need to know what a Christian is. We need to know that a Christian is someone who knows that God is holy, who admits that they've sinned against the holy God who made them, someone who's put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save them from the righteous judgment of God, someone who's living a lifestyle of turning from sin out of love for God. We need to know, you need to know that a Christian is someone who believes the gospel and pursues God and godliness. So you're responsible to know and understand what the gospel is and what it means, but you're also responsible to get to know one another, to be actively involved in each other's lives. I want to quote Jonathan Lehman here because he states this well. He says, quote, The job here is bigger than showing up at members' meetings and voting on new members. It involves working to know and be known by your fellow members seven days a week. You cannot affirm and give oversight to a people you don't know, not with integrity anyhow. That does not mean that you're responsible to know personally every member of your church. We do this work collectively, but look for ways to start including more of your fellow members into the regular rhythm of your life, end quote. The point here is that, again, you, church, the members of the church are responsible for the ministry of the church, not Nick and me, not Nick and me. It's your duty to know people, to love people, to grow in the gospel, to see if the gospel is growing in each other's lives. This is why if you have, a, if you have an option or a choice to, to pour into a, a Christian friend who's not a member of your church or to pour into a Christian friend who is a member of your church, you should choose this one because you have a responsibility, a, a covenantal relationship with one another. You have signed up to be responsible for each other's spiritual well-being. Yes, do good to all people as much as you can, but you're especially responsible for your fellow church members. And so Jesus signed us all up to be in this together, this discipleship program of helping guard the gospel and helping guard each other's lives. Now, let's get to this question before we move to elders. Um, 
What should the church vote on? Congregationalism, as I said, doesn't mean that the church votes on every decision that must be made in the church. So what does the church vote on? Well, the primary things that the church should vote on, as I've already said, are leaders and members. The what and the who of the gospel. Churches guard the what and the who of the gospel as they choose or remove elders and deacons and as they receive or dismiss members. Yes, congregational churches will often vote on the church's annual budget because the budget shapes the nature of the church's gospel ministry. In other words, you have a responsibility to know where your dollars are going and how they're doing gospel ministry. Some churches vote on other things like the sale or acquisition of property, amending the church's constitution. Lehman says the principle that should inform when we vote, when the whole church is needed to make a decision, is does the matter impact the congregation's ability to protect the what and the who of the gospel? And inasmuch as it does, you have a responsibility to show up and to vote. So, church members have the responsibility to affirm true doctrine and true believers. But I said that elders also have a responsibility. We are elder-led congregationalists. So, what do the elders do? Let's look now at the job description of the elders. And I preached on this to some extent a few weeks ago, so I'll be a bit more brief here. We've seen the several passages in the New Testament that give the congregation responsibility and authority. But what's interesting is, and you might know this already, there are several other passages that seem to give authority to the elders and the leaders and the pastors. So, for example, Hebrews 13, 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When Paul is visiting the elders in Ephesus, he gathers them together and he he addresses them for the last time. He calls them overseers, and he says that the Holy Spirit has appointed them. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 2, says that the elders are supposed to exercise oversight and shepherd the church. So you might be thinking, well, John, who has authority? Who does what around here? Who's in charge of the church besides Jesus? We know Jesus is, but under Jesus, who's in charge? Is it the congregation or the elders? Some passages give authority to the church. Some passages give authority to the elders. How do we reconcile these texts? Now, I want to make a distinction here. I think this is going to be helpful for us to think through this question between two kinds of authority. There's the authority of command and the authority of counsel. The authority of command and the authority of counsel. If you grew up, you know, you experienced this with your mom or parents, whoever raised you, you experienced this. You know this intuitively. I'll try to explain what it is in a minute. But you experienced the authority of command where, where mama says do something and there's no conversation. <laughs> like you just need to do that, right? Or else. But then as you age, you become an adult, you still honor, you still have a deferential spirit, but the authority is not the authority of command anymore. It's an authority of counsel. It's hard to know exactly where that line is and where the shift happens, but we've all experienced this, and it's same, the same things can be applied to the church. The authority of the elders is not an authority of command. The authority of the elders is an authority of counsel. Someone with the authority of command can enforce their instructions, 
Princes and governments have the sword to enforce their commands. Parents have the, what the Bible calls the rod. But there are other authority figures in the Bible who aren't sanctioned to enforce their commands. Husbands, for example, do have authority over their wives, but nowhere are they authorized to enforce their commands. Husbands have an authority of counsel. So how does this relate to elders and churches? Well, churches with the keys of the kingdom have the authority to command or of command. They can enforce their decisions through admitting and removing someone from membership. The elders, by contrast, have an authority of counsel. Like husbands, we can instruct, but we can't impose. Husbands can instruct, instruct, instruct with grace, gentleness, and patience, but we can't impose. And when we do impose, we are stepping over a line that God did not give us. And I'm arguing that so it is with elders. Elders have an authority of counsel, meaning they can instruct, but they can't impose. Why do you think one of the main qualifications to be an elder is that they must be able to teach? To teach. We might say able to persuade. To instruct. To show people what God says and try to help them see it for themselves and to do it. So elders are supposed to be able to teach. Teaching is all over Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. An elder doesn't use his authority to force or impose. Rather, he teaches. He does the slow, repetitious, patient work of instructing the people to grow in godliness. This can be very sanctifying, by the way. You know how much easier it would be just to say, do this and it be done? But that's not the way of the elder. The elder is supposed to teach. Paul even says to Timothy, teach with complete patience. Just teach, 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 teach. Give them the Bible, give them the Bible, give them the Bible, give them the Bible. It's not your job to change their hearts. Oh, by the way, you can't change their hearts anyways. So give them the Bible. Teach, 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 teach. This is why an elder must be a patient man, a kind man, a tender man, a man who's not quarrelsome, a man who doesn't want to debate everything and make everything a hill to die on but rather he teaches, he listens, he teaches, he listens for the long haul. So, what's the description, the job description of the elders? The elders are called to lead the church by their teaching and by their example. If their life is, if their life is a complete wreck, then their teaching is going to be completely undermined. So, their lifestyle has to complement and enforce their teaching And through this prayerful and patient teaching and through their godly example, the elders lead the church to exercise the authority Jesus gave the church with wisdom and care. To say it another way, the elders teach the members how to wisely use the keys of the kingdom. You might remember over in Ephesians 4 that Paul says that the ascended Christ gave gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But then, in verse 12, Paul says that these were given 
to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the job of the pastor teacher, the job of the elder is to train the church to do the ministry of the church. The congregation has the keys. The elders show them how to use them. The elders train the church to know the what and the who of the gospel. The church needs gospel teachers giving them oversight so that they can wisely fulfill their responsibilities of affirming true doctrine and true believers. If this is happening, if the elders are exercising their authority of counsel well and faithfully, the church should submit to their leadership. The only time the church shouldn't is if the elders depart from Scripture or the gospel. But as long as faithful and godly men are leading the church, then ordinarily the vast majority of votes should be unanimous and uneventful. It doesn't mean that we'll agree on everything. It does mean that the elders are leading the church through instruction and through their example to know what to do about the main things, namely the what and the who of the gospel. We just say, I am so happy to say that by the grace of God, this has been our experience at Preston Highlands for seven years almost. I'm so happy to be in a church like this. I'm so happy to be in a church where God has blessed us with godly leaders and with a godly congregation who joyfully follows the lead of their leaders, takes their responsibility seriously. I so hate hearing the horror stories of some of my friends in their churches when, when the, these roles are just gone awry or not even in place at all, and it's chaotic. And then I think about, man, we may not be the coolest church in town, but the Lord has given us something sweet here. The Lord has given us something sweet. And it's, it's about Him and His Word. And if your leaders ever depart from this Word, get rid of them quickly. And as long as your leaders are leading by the Word, according to the Gospel, follow them joyfully. And watch what God does in that joyful, beautiful harmony of leadership and membership. So what have we learned today? We've learned that elder-led congregationalism means that church members have a job and that the elders train them for their job. Church members are responsible and able to affirm true doctrine and true believers, the what and the who of the gospel. Elders are responsible to teach the church how to wisely use the authority Jesus gave them. This is Jesus' discipleship program. Jesus wants his people to guard his gospel and his bride. He's given them the authority, his authority to do this work. What a high calling and privilege. Isn't this amazing that Jesus Christ gave you, church, the authority to build up his church, to guard his gospel? This is amazing. This is amazing. Church member, a few practical points of application, then we're done. Church member, this means that you're responsible to act if I start preaching another gospel. I've already said that. It also means you're responsible to make sure that our member candidates understand the gospel. You're responsible for one another's discipleship to Christ. You're responsible to remove a member whose life and profession no longer agree. And your elders are responsible to train you for this work. When you add all of this up, you get Jesus' discipleship program. 
Elder-led congregationalism means that church members are called to more than passively showing up for 90 minutes on Sunday and living in anonymity uh, for the rest of the week. It means we need to jump in headfirst, start doing the hard and rewarding work of knowing the gospel and knowing each other, building relationships and making disciples. And I say rewarding because Jesus said it is more blessed to give than than to receive. So when we give our lives and our hearts to this work of building up the church, whether you're an elder or a church member, as we give our lives to this, Jesus says that blessing will come. That there's joy on the other side of this hard work. When we start living for something bigger than ourselves, namely the preservation and growth of God's gospel and God's church, we will be blessed. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> it's daunting to preach on a topic that doesn't seem immediately useful, but is so fundamentally part of what you're doing in the world. So, Give us grace, Lord, to understand these things, to apply them in our church. Thank you for the peace and the joy and the unity that you've given our church. Thank you for the leaders you've given our church. Thank you for the members you've given our church. I pray that you would help us all to do our jobs well. And we won't do them perfectly. We never will. We are completely dependent on grace. So help us to be faithful church members, faithful elders, Help us to own the ministry of this church and to pursue it with zeal and with joy, with humility, and with great patience. We pray that you would build up our church. pray that you would make our church look more and more like Jesus so that we might reflect the glory and the love of Jesus to this world and to this neighborhood who is in so desperate need, such desperate need of you. Bless us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.